We've known for decades how harmful the consumer marketplace can be with diet culture and the dieting industry, diet pills, all the negative body image pressures that come through media and now through social media, through advertising. We've known about this for years. People have been writing for decades about this. But what hadn't happened was really connecting the dots with what was happening in consumer culture and what corporations were doing to exploit that for profit. S. Bryn Austin is a social epidemiologist and behavioral scientist at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. She's a doctor of science and her research focuses on public health approaches to eating disorders. She also helped launch the Australian National Eating Disorder Strategy for 2023 to 2033, where she praised Australia's role as a worldwide leader in eating disorder prevention and treatment. And we were lucky enough to catch up with her shortly after that event. Eating disorders are common, they are deadly, and they're expensive. We were able to estimate that eating disorders cost the U.S. economy nearly 65 billion U.S. dollars every year. Now, this is a recurring cost. When I'm talking to policymakers, I make sure to emphasize that. This is not a one-time cost. Every single year, $65 billion is the cost to our economy. Eating disorders actually are over 1% of the total cost of illness in the United States. If we were to combine everything, cancer, heart disease, all kinds of illnesses and their impact on the economy, eating disorders alone is 1.2% of that total what we call burden of disease. That's what the economists call it. That is burden of disease. Yeah. For something that that many policymakers and people out in the community don't realize how common they are, how deadly they are, and how much they impact people's lives. A couple of other uh, points that are so important for community advocates and for policymakers that we found through this report is that actually two-thirds of those costs are what we call productivity losses. Then that is affecting employers' workplaces and government and, and families, of course. Two-thirds of those costs. And the reason? Nearly half of people who have an eating disorder experience that before age 30. And 83% of people with eating disorders are in the prime of their working years. So that's different from other illnesses that maybe uh, are more likely to come on later in life in terms of how it affects the economy. Eating disorders are, are right on during the prime of people's working years. And that has a cascading effect on employers, on families, on basic household solvency, education, employment, being able to hold a job. There's all of these ripple effects. And our report was able to shine a light on how many they are. At, at a, we we're talking eating like the broad um, category of eating disorders, eating all of the diagnoses in, incorporated in that. Yeah, our report encompassed all eating disorders except ARFID. Avoidant restrictive food intake disorder is such a new diagnosis that there wasn't enough data for us to work with. Right. That'll need to be a future report. We need to have more economic research in that area, then that would be able to be included. Yeah. Right. Now, the other thing that I've heard you speak about was trying to make some of these harmful products that people with eating disorders look for more difficult for them to get or, you know, incentivizing them not to use them, I suppose. Can you take me through what you've been doing? 
In the eating disorders field and body image, we've known for decades how harmful the consumer marketplace can be with the diet culture and the dieting industry, diet pills, all the negative body image pressures that come through media and now through social media, through advertising. We've known about this for years. People have been writing for decades about this. But what hadn't happened was really connecting the dots with what was happening in consumer culture and what corporations were doing to exploit that for profit and then targeting those commercial actors. So talking, we're talking about the commercial interests behind diet culture. That hadn't happened in a way that we've seen, for instance, in public health around tobacco or around alcohol or some of these other consumer products where for you know, a century, a half a century, we've had really concerted public health focus on protecting communities, reining in commercial actors, or exploiting people to make profit off of addiction, for instance. How did your knowledge and your experience um, of public health policy in relation to tobacco and other similar industries influence your work in eating disorders? This actually, the idea of doing this, it came to me actually during a presentation. It was probably, it could have been 15, 12, 12 15 years ago. I was giving a presentation in front of a, uh, a group where there were some really expert food policy folks in the audience. One of them was a lawyer uh, who I knew who did a lot around food policy, not related to diet culture, but thinks a lot about those commercial actors and what options we have for policy. And I was talking about, oh, these diet pills, kids are using them. They're, it's very common. They can buy them anywhere. She raised her hand in the audience. She said, it doesn't have to be that way. Just like we've done with tobacco, we don't have to sell diet pills to kids. We can move these products behind the counter. We can put get regulation in place to ban the sale of these products to children. We could tax them, which is something else that public health has done uh, around some commercial products that were harmful. So we that was the light bulb that went off. And ever since then, we've really run with it because it's such a perfect parallel with other very successful strategies from public health. It's interesting that a lot of the time we see the diet culture, especially in this field, a lot of people compare the wellness or the diet industry to tobacco, to big mm-hmm. tobacco. And while it's still there, it's it not nowhere near as big as it was. Is that a fair comparison, do you think? The companies that are selling these toxic diet pills are taking a page right from tobacco. They are following their lead. They're not as successful yet, and hopefully they never will be because we're, we're fighting them everywhere we can. Uh, we've built a campaign, uh, working with partners through the community in now 10 states in the United States. We've gotten uh, bills filed in the state legislatures in the U.S., to ban the sale of toxic diet pills to children. It's really common sense. I mean, it should be a no-brainer in a sense that you've got a toxic product. It has no medical evidence to support use. It can be uh, very harmful in the immediate sense because of dangerous ingredients, and it's well-documented how it's linked with eating disorders. Common sense, protect children from this product. Lawmakers understand that, and that's why in 10 states in the U.S., state lawmakers have filed the bill to take action on these companies. 
These companies are going to keep pushing to profit off of kids' body image struggles, profit off of eating disorders. We have to push back, and we are. You have got a pretty good track record of getting the attention of U.S. lawmakers, uh, particularly with one of the examples you gave about um, bringing in some celebrity grunt. Can you take us through that campaign? There's been a couple of changes that have been so important to this campaign to bring attention to this issue and to make sure lawmakers are paying attention. One of them is to get the attention of celebrities who are uh, very well known, uh, very articulate and passionate about this issue. I mean, Jamila Jamil is is one of the best out there. Um, very articulate. It's a strong uh, uh, voice advocate in advocacy. Uh, I had the opportunity to meet her. And when she found out about our campaign, she came to Boston. She wanted to be there with us, go to the State House, be there for our State House briefing. And went around the state house with us and met with the president of the Senate, met with the commissioner of the, the state public health department. They all wanted to meet her. And one of them even asked for an autograph for their child, which was very funny. But they heard her message and they heard our message. These are doors we were never able to open before. So we were grateful to the advocacy for folks who's, who, who are able to amplify the voices of so many who just don't have the same audience that they do. Another turn of fate for us that has been so important for this campaign has been uh, what happened in response to the pandemic. So as we all know, when the pandemic started, so much shut down, kids got sent home to they couldn't go to school in person anymore. For young people, their lifeline was uh, often through online. Where school is through online, their social groups in that way. Um, there's lots about that that we hope never have to, re to repeat. However, one thing that came out of that is young people became very facile at finding what they were interested in and reaching out all over the world to, to get involved online in organizing or activities in that way. So by January of 2021, we had teens, high school teens from all over the country in the U.S. and actually here in Australia, in the U.K., Canada, India, getting in touch with us saying they wanted to get involved in our policy advocacy they wanted to learn how does policy advocacy work? What are the skills they need? They're passionate about this issue because they are bombarded by the ads, the influencers, all of the harmful messaging for toxic diet pills. They've seen it, heard their friends. Some of them have been harmed by these. They found us and they said, find a way to integrate us into your plan. It's like, okay, well, the same time that kids went online and everyone else did, so did lawmakers. The state houses all across the country, they all were then doing meetings online. Their hearings were online. Being able to testify was taken online. All of a sudden, the playing field was leveled between us, the community advocates, our high school students working with us, and those well-heeled lobbyists who work for the diet pill industry. They used to have us beat in state house after state house because they had so much money to fly there, to spend the night in a hotel, to send their staff there. We couldn't compete with that. Once everything went online, leveled the playing field in an instant. Now we can have high school students testifying before New York uh, and Massachusetts, California hearings. They can meet with lawmakers face-to-face -face over Zoom and tell their stories. That was never before possible at the scale that we're able to do now. That's amazing. Open up so many doors. And some of these students who you're working with, 
have taken to social media themselves. Uh, that was a pretty in interesting story as well, where there was a concerted campaign by some of the people who didn't like what you were asking. California was one of the first states where we were really picking up steam. We're having uh, a lot of uh, success in the California state legislature. We got a lawmaker to pick it up. We got hearings, a lot of support from lawmakers there. We had done really well in one of the first hearings we had in the state legislature, all virtual. And then we were getting ready for the next hearing. So the bills move from one committee to the next one until they go to a full assembly or Senate vote. So we were at a very important committee vote coming out. Well, up to that point, we had been running an online youth survey. And this was youth-led. Youth had put a survey out online to ask other youth in California, well, how are you affected by these products? How easy it is, is it for you to buy them? Has any adult ever even told you that they're toxic? And our survey was getting a huge response from youth all across California. And youth, by and large, very much in support of the, the bill, speaking out against these predatory companies. Uh, and then all of a sudden, within about, uh, it was probably about 48 hours before the hearing, that online survey was getting flooded with responses that are like, no, let's keep the products. Let's oppose the bill. We're not bothered. Like, all of these surveys coming in right before that hearing. Well, our, the youth we work with are incredible. They saw that. They saw what was happening, the real shift in the messaging just a couple of days before the hearing. And they did a whole forensic analysis of the response pattern. These are scientists, budding scientists to be able to do this and forensic scientists. They discovered all of these oddities about the response patterns that didn't line up from what we were getting from real youth up until that point. And so they were able to identify, we, we didn't have a proof of whose computer was coming from, so we don't know for sure it was coming from the lobbyists, but we know those lobbyists in California were working hard to defeat our bill. And it was very suspicious. It's possible that it was due to bots, as happens online with surveys. But either way, it was very suspicious. Wow. I mean, I'd love to say that that was surprising. Um, but of course, we, we know what happens when vested interests, money, power collide. So was there anything you could do about it? The youth weren't going to let, it, let this get them down. They put together this incredible TikTok uh, uh, triptych, so uh, three short videos uh, about how they discovered the problem, what the issues were, how they discovered through their forensic analysis that, their, that the survey had been um, compromised by nefarious actors of some type. And then they spoke out and said, this is important. We want to see this through and put it out through TikTok, which got a lot of pickup. And they're just so ready to take on the, no matter how big the opponents are, they are ready to fight for justice, to fight for equity, to fight diet culture. They are right there in the trenches ready to do this. It's very odd, though, that you would think that kids would be coming up with responses like they did. Like, it just didn't make much sense. I was really interesting story, but the fact that they would put so much time and effort into an online survey like that. Yeah. It, this is a nefarious uh, sector or industry. Yes, absolutely it is a nefarious industry. Make no mistake, these are predatory products. Over-the-counter diet pills and muscle-building supplements are predatory products. 
They are preying on young people's body image struggles, eating disorders, body dysmorphia to make a profit. That's all that they're about. Their products don't work. They're not safe. They're not medically recommended, but they want to make money off of harming children. And that's what they're able to get away with. We won't stop till they're Till we can put it into that. And I'm sure there's lots of, of, of about this campaign that we could talk for ages, but I wanted to ask you a couple more kind of broader questions about where we're at. If we look at the, over the past 20 years or so, yeah. how far have we come? Because I've heard a couple of clinicians and a couple of researchers saying that we still not making a whole lot of uh, headway in terms of prevention, uh, treatment as well, and how that the the industry works as a whole, because we still don't understand a lot about these um, illnesses. What's your take on that? I would say in the last 20 years, 30 years, we've made a lot of progress, but we have a long way to go still. Yeah. But part of the issue is that when we develop effective, whether it's an effective treatment or effective prevention programs, it's very difficult to take that leap then to scale up, to get something adopted system-wide in a health system or in a, a community system and make changes uh, to make uh, treatments or make prevention programs accessible. Also, a lot of the research really didn't uh, have in mind accessibility across income groups, across race, ethnicity groups, or d diverse cultural groups. Um, across neurodiverse communities, LGBTQ communities, then that wasn't all part of the equation from the beginning. And so we, what we have are treatments or prevention programs that have a strong track record in a more limited population, but important, important, important work. But we haven't made as much progress as we need to to have accessible programs, accessible, whether it's treatment or prevention in that way. The other piece is that, in, I'll speak to prevention in particular, eating disorders prevention really arose out of the clinical professions. And it makes sense. Who was seeing eating disorders come into their office? People in need of treatment for eating disorders coming into their office, it's clinicians. They were seeing it up close. They were the first ones to identify eating disorders. And they brought the best of their training to the question of prevention. I'm sure that many clinicians have gotten to a point where they're feeling like we can't treat our way out of this epidemic. We have to be going upstream and looking in earlier in the path to figure out how to prevent these conditions. We can't get enough people trained in treatment to really take care of it. And plus, that means waiting till a lot of suffering has happened, if you wait till someone needs intensive treatment. So they brought their insight on how critical it is to develop prevention for eating disorders, but they're bringing in as the toolbox of clinicians and not of, of what has been done in other areas of prevention. Meanwhile, in my field in public health, they were completely ignoring eating disorders altogether. Uh, and, and in fact, in the field of public health isn't so great on mental health broadly, and then even worse with eating disorders. So when I started my career, uh, there was almost nothing happening in public health around eating disorders. So why did you get involved in prevention strategies and initiatives and all the things you've been talking about? Probably. Uh, five, eight years after I graduated, I was at uh, the American Public Health Association Conference, which is our big national public health. It co covers every topic. 
And I was back at the hotel room with a colleague after having spent one of the days there. And I said, you know what? There's nothing on eating disorders here. Same last year, same the year before. And she was like, stop complaining and do something about it. And that was one of those light bulb moments. I realized, oh, this isn't going to change unless we can address the pipeline in public health to get people thinking about prevention and bringing them into the field. And that's what led to the creation of my program, Striped, Strategic Training Initiative for Prevention of Eating Disorders. You call it a public health incubator. And it's the, the, the first program like this dedicated to prevention research and training at a public health school with a full-on, um, really both feet in public health, bringing in new perspectives to how we do that. And we're very focused on training because it's not just about what we do. It's about helping to build the next generation who can bring public health approaches to prevention. And the reason this is so important is no matter how good your intervention is, whether it's for treatment or prevention, if it can't be scaled up, if it is not considered uh, something that's practical, uh, acceptable, um, uh, cost-effective by communities, it's going to have no future, which means nobody's going to benefit from it other than through the original research that's done. We have to be thinking about how can, how can this idea, this program, how is this going to work out in the real world? Yeah, I love that. Now, you were involved in Australia's National Eating Disorder and Prevention Strategy. Your work was cited in it, and you spoke at the launch in the second half of 2023. Over the next 10 years, how much hope do you think people with lived experience and the sector generally can take from this new framework? No country has done something like this as far as I've ever seen. Australia is leading the world by coming out with a national strategy like this. And it, it's very encompassing. But there's a couple of things about it I want to call attention to that are just so groundbreaking and so important for uh, Australia and for other countries to be paying attention to. It is not just focused on programs to make kids more resilient. Now, that is very important. We want kids to be more resilient. We want programs that can help kids manage the toxic environment around, whether it's media, social media, commercial actors, all of that. But we need to be changing that environment. And again and again throughout this report, it's talking about working across sectors, across sites, whether that's media, uh, schools, uh, commercial environment, healthcare systems, discrimination. This is something we are getting more and more research on how harmful discrimination is, whether it's around weight-based discrimination or now we know other kinds, racist discrimination, LGBTQ, anti-gay kind of discrimination, anti-transgender discrimination. These impact body image in a, in a very harmful way that increase the risk for eating disorders. But we don't want to just make kids resilient to being discriminated against or resilient to fat shaming. We want to change that environment. And one of the things I love about the strategy, it's really a whole community strategy, getting everybody involved and everybody's responsibility to create healthier environments there. Uh, that's, that's one of the, the, the gifts that Australia is giving the rest of the world as a model for how do we envision a better world to prevent eating disorders. Well, thank you so much for sitting down with us for, for a little while. Appreciate it very much. Thank you. It's such a pleasure. If you're struggling with an eating disorder or you think you might be or you think someone you care for might be, the best thing that you can do is reach out. The Butterfly National Helpline is 
E-D-HOPE. That's 1-800-334-673. Or you can go to butterfly.org.au where you can chat online or just look at some of the resources and find out a little bit more about what it all means or who you can go to for help in your local area. I'd also encourage you to have a look at the website for the Australian and New Zealand Academy for Eating Disorders, particularly if you're a clinician or a professional working in the sector. Butterfly Let's Talk is produced for Butterfly Foundation by Icon Media with the support of Waratah Education Foundation. We really appreciate your support. Our executive producer is Camilla Beckett. And as always, if you'd like to help out, please just leave us a comment and a rating in the app where you're listening to this podcast. That on its own is massive for us. We'd really appreciate it. I'm Sam Eiken. Thank you so much for your company. Listener.